Today's guest is Catherine Connors, CEO of League of Badass Women. Catherine, welcome to our show. I am so excited for the opportunity to meet with you. Happy to be here. Thank you. I'm not sure, but we'll make sure that you know our show is all about business, the future of industries and jobs. And that's one of the things that everybody is wondering about right now due to COVID. It could not be more scary, you know, because businesses are shutting down. One of my favorite places, Brio's, I don't know if they have it in California, but I went to it in Winter Park and I went, oh, heartache. It's not there. It's gone. So we see businesses shutting down. Employment rates are just unbelievably high across the country. And people are just trying to figure things out here. So this should be a really good show for us. Um, you have a blog, and it's called Her Bad Mother. You co-authored co -authored a book called The Feminine Revolution. Tell us about your passion for writing and where it all came from. And curious as to share with our listeners where those names came from, too. Her Bad Mother. <laughs> oh, I, my love of writing goes back to childhood. You know, I, I think when I was a kid, there were two things that I really wanted to be. One was a writer, the other was a veterinarian. And then when I realized that being a veterinarian might mean, you know, doing things that would make me sad with animals, you know, writing is what was left over. So I was one of those kids that always wrote in journals and, you know, wrote descriptive paragraphs for fun. I was, it would have been the ideal English student for you, Isabella. <laughs> it was, it was a deep passion. Um, that, that sort of carried through everything, you know, in my, when I was in university, I, I, I fell in love with political philosophy and particularly examinations of gender and political philosophy. And I ended up channeling my love of writing into academic writing, which was a good channel. Um, but when I was on maternity leave with my daughter, well, it feels like a billion years ago now, um, I, I had been, I'd finished my dissertation. I was lecturing. I was taking a break to, to have my daughter and I fell accidentally into the world of mom blogs, which at the time were a very new thing. It feels very quaint mm -hmm. to say now that they were a very new thing. This is pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, pre-Instagram, end of 2005. And as a new mom, my head kind of blew off because there's all these women writing true stories about their experience of motherhood. And certainly at the time, they're really, you couldn't get those true stories anywhere. Parenting magazines and parenting books were pretty universally glossy and optimistic. And at the same time, the academic in me who'd been studying women's storytelling and the ways that women have or have not been able to use their voices became very, very interested in that kind of platform as a new mode of storytelling. I was on my own, I was struggling with postpartum depression. And so even though I told myself I was going into it with academic interest, I fell back in love with personal writing, with the personal essay style and just couldn't stop. And as it happened, it took off and ended up being a more lucrative enterprise than teaching was. <laughs> so I ultimately pivoted fully into that and then into digital media. Do you have any of your old journals for, from when you were a kid? I do. I do. <laughs> I do. I'm a, I, I am a, a bit of a, a paper hoarder. So I'm a big 
conserver of old letters, old journals. You know, I, I probably have somewhere stuff that hasn't been lost, you know, to time or to damage, but, you know, probably much of, you know, what I've written, I've got tucked in a box somewhere. So I did the same thing. I was starting writing these uh, little stories and I really wanted my name to be Wendy. And I was sixth in sixth grade and I was writing the stories of Wendy, the adventures of Wendy, and they were supposed to be mysteries. And I had kept those. And when I went back to read them, I laughed my butt off so hard because I cannot believe how atrocious it was. It was like, I really thought it was good writing at the time, but it was so hysterically funny. And it's just not just because of, I guess, the thought sequencing that went into play and what I thought was, was decent writing. It was just like, I don't even know what my mind was thinking. It, it was like all over the place. So I, I'm going to say that those were more of journaling than they were truly a story. But it is funny to be able to go back to things that you've written. I kept my everything I wrote articles in my PhD program and also even in my MBA and my undergrad. And every single one of the times I've gone back, I go, wow, I really did get better. <laughs> Um, so it's a process, right? Don't you think writing is always something that the more you do it, you really can get better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you improve your technique, obviously, uh, but you also find your voice, you know, which in my opinion is the most important part of writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, essay, opinion, whatever it is, that getting comfortable with your voice is the thing that really does become honed. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, the first lengthy thing I ever wrote, at least that I can recall, was a novel, I'm making little air quotes with my hands, about a girl named Kira and her pet unicorn that I've never forgotten. It's one piece of writing that I can't find, but I, I did the illustrations. I had the story. I'm sure if I went back, I'd like to think that I would be charmed if I went back. Mm -hmm. I, I've never written much fiction, um, so it's stuck in my mind, but I am still very much the writer who wrote about Kira and her unicorn. You know, I'd like to think that there's a strong strand of sort of curiosity and imagination that I've just managed to hone and refine. So her bad mother, though, I don't think you covered that one for me. Where did that come I from? didn't. So when I actually started the blog, you know, this was, again, this was end of 2005. And it was still, it was relatively easy to start a blog. Blogspot was, you know, the, the usually the default that people went to for plug and play blogs. And I called it the first days of the rest of my life all lowercase, it was very twee, but it was super experimental. And I didn't think really that anybody would read it. I did a number of posts and then realized that people were reading it and commenting and engaging, which was kind of a radical thing, certainly for me at the time. And I thought, you know, I need to be a little bit more purposeful about this. The blogs that I had started reading had clever names and they had banners and photos. So I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going to move away from the blog spot template. I'm going to pay somebody a tiny amount of money to make me a banner and I'm going to give it a proper name. And I decided to call it Her Bad Mother because the this sort of thread of storytelling that was emerging in my blog posts was a kind of hybrid of my own experience and my academic experience. I'd been really interested as an academic in some of the tropes and archetypes of the feminine and how, how women are portrayed as being with or without power. And our archetypes of good and bad mothers were a big piece of that. 
And it was one element of my academic career that I was bringing pretty fully into, you know, what we might call a philosophy of motherhood. And that was simply that I was going to reject stereotypes and archetypes of the good mother. It happened that when I was growing up, my mom, who was amazing, always described herself as a bad mother with tongue very firmly in cheek. She liked to tease, she liked to make up fantastical stories, she liked practical jokes, she still does. And so I grew up with this constant refrain from her that she was a bad mother, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. When my sister had her first child, we once had an experience where she was playing a practical joke on him. He was three or four years old. And I said to him, Zaki, that's just your bad grandma. And he looked me in the eye and he said, no, auntie, that's your bad mother. So this idea of your bad mother and her bad mother had been stuck in my mind. That had been about a decade before I started writing, but it became this sort of idea in my head. It's like, well, I will be her AKA my daughter's bad mother in the same way that my mother had been to my nephew, her Catherine's bad mother. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really insightful. Um, I think that just about every woman can relate to that. I think women as a whole, we tend to see the worst in ourselves. We'll see the best in others, but we see the worst in ourselves and we diminish how we, um, how we perform you know, what we, certainly what we look like and everything else. It's just like, we don't treat ourselves as a friend. Perfection is always, I think, whatever that perfection, the definition of it means. We're very hard on ourselves. Yeah. I'm really relating to all of this very much. Does your nephew know that he started the name in all of this? Yeah, I think so. That's, that's a really good question. <laughs> that's a really good question because I started that blog 14 years ago and my nephew is now in his late 20s and has kids of his own. You know, you know I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to message him after this interview <laughs> to ask him if, did, did you, like, just to make sure that you're, I've done so many interviews over the last 14 years where I've told the story of her bad mother that I guess I just assumed he would have listened to them or read about it, but I don't think we've ever actually had a direct conversation about it. So Zach, if you listen to this, I'm going to follow up with you to make sure you do know your place in the true story of her bad mother. Going um, back on track with like, you're an author, you're an entrepreneur, you're an activist, a CEO, and until 2015, you were the head of content and editor in chief of Disney Interactive. We were talking about before the interview, if maybe you had any Disney stories and what was that experience like? I have loads of Disney stories. <laughs> Are you allowed to even share them? That's yeah. the key. Yeah, well, it, it's funny. I was speaking on a panel a month or two ago on storytelling and one of my Disney colleagues was on, former Disney colleagues was on the panel with me and I was sharing a story for some of the work and he joked on the panel, he said, you know that the black helicopters are circling your house right now. <laughs> you know, the cars are pulling up outside. Um, Disney's pretty famously locked down. But a lot of what I did was pretty public. So that there is stuff that I can share. I came into Disney on an acquisition. I was editor-in-chief of Babbel, um, which was what brought my family from Canada to the U.S. to New York City, and Babbel was acquired by Disney. 
after the acquisition, I became head of content for Disney Interactive and editor-in-chief. I was also the lead for women and girls strategy within the company and led the charge on a lot of the company's princess work, princess rebranding. This was interesting for me at the time because it still is in some respects. I mean, if you'd asked me to make a short list of careers I never thought that I would have, Disney executive would have been on it almost <laughs> certainly. You know, I used to teach women's studies seminars that dug into the problematics of commodified girl culture, especially in the form of princess. In the first five or six years of my daughter's life, I was adamantly anti-princess in terms of the products and the media you know because i'd been a feminist philosopher so, so no dressing up as a disney princess at halloween well they, it, i mean that's what i would have preferred i mean i had to have my own come to jesus about princess before i was anywhere near <laughs> the company which luckily was good preparation because she it turned out was very very interested and she's she was always a um a complicated in terms of her own femininity. I have some anecdotes about this in the book, but one of the things was, was that she was what you would describe as a tomboy, very much from the youngest possible age into trucks and skateboards, but also developed a fondness for princess. And this was a few years before Disney, but there, there was one incident in which we were shopping for snowsuits. We still lived in Canada and she had selected a pair of Spider-Man snow boots, which I was very excited by, right? It's like, yes, superheroes are cool. Then she wandered over to the princess snowsuits and picked out the most over-the-top Disney-branded pink sparkly snowsuit with all the princesses across the front. It was a walking pink fluffy Disney commercial and I did everything in my power to discourage her. I was like, oh honey, don't you want a Spider-Man snowsuit to match your boots, et cetera, et cetera. And she pushed back and she said, mommy, why can't I like what I like? And I had to take a step back yep. and go, you know what? You are absolutely right. You should be able to like what you like. I was able to confront this in a different way when my son was born and became of toy loving age and he developed a fondness for princesses. And it became this interesting exercise in going, okay, this is something I write about in the book. How am I balancing what I am telling my children is valuable and what is not valuable? So if I communicate to my daughter that there's something bad or weak or problematic about princesses, but not about superheroes, am I not inadvertently sending a message that girl things are in some way problematic? And then aren't I also sending that message to my son and telling mm -hmm. him boy things are cool, girl things are bad. And doesn't that then become something of a problem when I think about how I want them to be able to navigate their own gender journeys? So fortunately, by the time Disney came around, I had done some important personal work and mothering work on <laughs> my my very deeply ambivalent feelings about princess but there was still you know there, there was still a bit of room to develop because i was then in a position of leading some work on reframing princess which was a very rich opportunity sometimes a frustrating opportunity but mostly a rich and enjoyable one and one that i was able to bring my academic background to bear on because i'd done work in folklore and mythology but it was definitely, it was a journey. 
I've found myself, you know, on the public relations front lines more than once, you know, having to defend Disney choices about princess and needing to be the spokesperson for princess culture. And that required some, you know, nuanced footwork on my part to be able to sort of stay true to my own investment in that culture and you know also do right by the company so it was it was a a profound education it definitely compelled me to rethink a lot of my own what i thought were very very fancy highfalutin phd assumptions about girl culture that became pretty formative in you know my later work at disney and then the work that i've done since disney i want to throw a question that's come out of our conversation here you're you're at disney in california correct Yes, I started in New York. When we were acquired, we were still in New York City. Disney has offices basically everywhere. Disney has offices in Florida. Um, oh, where yeah. you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it, it was Disney that brought us from New York to, to uh-huh. Los Angeles because I had spent the first year of the acquisition basically commuting between New York City and LA, which was not sustainable. I don't know if you're going to know the answer to this question, but it's, it's always been something that's in the back of my mind. They have uh, had the princesses for a while, and many times there's been a movement, I don't know, maybe in the last 15 years, to make them more um, empowered characters in the movies and to show them as you know, strong and not, oh, I, you know, I need a prince, whatever. But do you know if there's any history, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, was that ever part of how they wanted to have the women in those movies depicted where it was, we have to show them as strong, that they have a mind, that they're intelligent and you know, they're not depending upon a man. Was that ever part of their culture? And maybe you can't even say. Oh, no, no, I'm happy to. It's a favorite topic. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So a lot of what is often criticized about Disney movies and Disney representation of princesses and the stories that they emerged from is is original to the, the most famous version of the stories. So Disney didn't invent the evil stepmother, Disney didn't invent young princesses, Disney didn't invent happily ever after and marrying princes. Those were features of a lot of the past stories. I hesitate to say original because stories like Cinderella go back way back, way, 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 way back, like 3000 years. Like the earliest version of Cinderella is the story of Rodolphus, which is a story from ancient Greece, like 800 BCE, thereabouts. I get my dates wrong. There's a Chinese version of Cinderella that predates the French version of Cinderella by many hundreds of years. So we can't really talk about the original in any meaningful sense, but the most famous versions like the Charles Perrault version of Cinderella, which is the most famous, or the Brothers Grimm versions of the fairy tales. Those stories are, you know, Disney's interpretation of those stories are, are pretty true to form. So the representation of a female protagonist wanting to go the Cinderella wanting to go to the ball there being a prince and a happily ever after marriage at the end of it that Disney didn't invent that so there's interesting stuff to unpack just in the question of so how much did Disney advance the idea that happily ever after is what girls and women should aspire to 
one of the things I, I used to talk a lot about, and I talk a little bit about this in one or two chapters of the book, was that in older versions of the stories, to posit a happily ever after, for example, to posit the opportunity to marry somebody that you love was a pretty radical thing, right? That was a pretty powerful rejection mm -hmm. of social norms to pursue um, marriage on the basis of love. So it's something that is certainly not radical for us now and that we actually think of as in some ways conservative. But for their time in these stories, these were, you know, the, the female protagonists were doing pretty radical things. You know, Snow White escaping through the forest and setting up her own home with some dwarves is an interesting mm -hmm. social emotional lesson, right? She is very self-directed in that. And yes, she eats a poisoned apple. And yes, she's revived with a kiss but most of the story revolves around her arguably affecting her own rescue. So there's all sorts of nuances to the stories that we can unpack that, that, that tell us more about how we might think about female power. Disney was definitely just following the model of the stories you know, in their origins. So their version of Cinderella, of Snow White, of Sleeping Beauty were pretty true in Sleeping Beauty's case, not so much true because the original story there is kind of rapey and, and violent, um, but, but they were telling the stories that they knew. When we talk about the stories now, when we were doing the princess work at Disney, a lot of the conversations we had were about thinking through very carefully how we were representing female power, right? Mm -hmm. and not necessary, and this is something that, that comes out in the live action Cinderella, which was released shortly after I left, but that, that work was part of some of these conversations, as was Frozen and other Pixar things like Inside Out, which look at girl power through a different lens. But in the live action Cinderella, for example, Cinderella's kindness and compassion are represented very explicitly as her superpowers, right? Her tagline, her catchphrase is have courage and be kind. And mm -hmm. the reason that she prevails in that story, and it's very, very on the surface in that version, Disney version, the live action one, that this is why she's powerful, because she is kind, because she is courageous, not because she knows how to shoot a bow and arrow the way that Merida does, not because she is independent the way that Elsa is in Frozen, but because those historically coded feminine traits of kindness, of compassion, of cooperation are recoded in that version as something powerful. So my the nuances of my journey through Disney in part were nuances through that balanced look at how are we thinking about stories with female protagonists? How are we thinking about how we represent femininity? How we represent choices women make? Asking questions like if we can give boys the, um, grant them the respect to believe that they're not going to believe they're going to turn into Superman if they like superheroes, then we should also grant girls and women the respect to believe that they're not just going to believe they're going to turn into a princess when they get older because they happen to like princess things. So it became a more of a sort of investigation of looking at girl culture, boy culture, masculine entertainment or storytelling and feminine entertainment or storytelling and trying to look at them through a nuanced lens so that we can have stories where the happy ending is a love story and have stories where the happy ending is two sisters rescuing each other or a female protagonist rescuing herself or rescuing a boy in order to have that more nuanced view of what 
a, a female protagonist can do and can be? That's a very long-winded answer to your question. No, it was really, really interesting. And it, it always, like I could talk about this with you for uh, probably a week, you know, if we sat down and had like lunch and dinner, I, I just really feel like, and, and then what about this? What about this? I would ask a lot of questions based on everything that you're sharing here. Some of that I, I know is environmental. It's based on like, you know, where a child and the parents live, what their cultural beliefs are, the norms of that area. But on the same hand, I also go, how much of it is like part of the DNA of like who we are at the essence? Because we as women, you know, we're the ones that can bear children. So there's that natural nurturing side of us. Maybe, maybe that is part of, part of it, but maybe not. And I don't even know how they could do an ethical study around that with with taking a child away from a family and just let it be and see how it grows up and okay do you believe in princesses you know but very little human interaction right a lot of families that a lot I, I don't know how many but there certainly have some that have been surfaced in public commentary that have you know experimented with trying to have really gender neutral homes Often, though, what looks like gender neutrality is actually just sort of flipping over to masculine coding. Like it becomes mm -hmm. neutral colors, it becomes the toys and games and things that are usually coded as masculine. So what it is, is not necessarily gender neutral, but it's rejecting social codes and femininity, which is not necessarily serving anybody. I, it's open for debate. I actually, I, I think that one of the things that I love about um, Disney's version of some of these stories is that they really do make a meal of female villains, which some people have criticized, but I think really making rich characters out of female villains is one of the ways that we create much more rich storytelling about what it means to be female or to identify as female. Female Disney villains are some of the best villains ever created in any storytelling ever. I mean, they rival, I think, they're hard, the hard. of, yeah, they're, you know, they're ferocious, they're monstrous, they're complicated, you know, they're, they violate all sorts of norms and expectations of gender, or sometimes they just totally exult in them. Um, they're really interesting characters, and often the way that they're portrayed as monstrous or villainous is that they, they're, they're not natural mothers. That's why the evil stepmother is an intentional trope, because it's sort of separating biology from nurture. Often they are garish and made up, and, you know, the, you know, the 101 Dalmatians, for example, Corella de Vil, it's like the signal element of her cruelty is her terrible, terrible puppy derived for coat, right? You right. know, presented as very glam, you know, she's kind of like, you know, she's like the Anna Wintour, Miranda Priestley character, just, you know, <laughs> vicious and glamorous. But they're interesting, right? They're interesting characters, they a different representation of femininity. Mm -hmm. um, it made me also think of The Little Mermaid. Mm, uh, Ursula. You know, that one character, yeah. I, Ursula, yeah, thank you. I was going, oh my God. I know all of them. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. Um, and then one more question before we, because I, like I said, this is just so interesting to me. When you were growing up, did you wear the princess outfit also? Well, they didn't have the outfits, right? So mm -hmm. Disney consumer products and princess and, and Disney merchandise, the way we know it, didn't really... Right 
until the 90s. Um, but I pretended to be a princess. I know yeah. I did. Right. So this is a question that sometimes gets asked. Did you have a princess when you were growing up? And I 100% did. And that princess was Cinderella. I loved Cinderella. I... Cinderella was like a visceral thing for me. I had coloring books and I would spend hours like with that blue, like I can visual, it's like Proust and his Madeleines. It's, it's a, a visceral memory for me. I can practically smell the crayons and feel the wax in my Cinderella coloring books. I absolutely adored Cinderella. And I, I can't even deconstruct for you why entirely. There weren't a lot of princesses to choose from. It was really just Cinderella. That's but true. I, I, I think... You know, I, I, I loved the transformation. I loved the gown. I loved, and this is the thing that makes Cinderella a powerful and recurring story and a very, very old story, is it is a story of overcoming the obstacles around you and being able to pursue a goal, right? When I was at Disney, I used to joke that I was going to do a, a video series after I left Disney on Princess TED Talks, which I may still do one day. Uh, but I would use them as sort of arguments and meetings to say, it's like, look, Cinderella could 100% do a TED Talk. It's like three ways to get to the ball or three reasons why you need to go to the ball, right? You need to find your allies, find your fairy godmother, believe in yourself, you know, find a pumpkin, right? You can totally make a story out of a, a TED Talk out of Cinderella's story of overcoming, right? Mm -hmm. And using her true superpowers, her kindness, her compassion, um, her, you know, her quote unquote soft skills, her feminine skills to mm -hmm. get what she wants. What she wanted was to get away from her step siblings and her stepmother and go to a ball. The prince was just icing on the cake, right? Cinderella got what she wanted. You know, she's the kind of female character that we might today say is like hashtag girl boss. She did it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. All, all the research that I did prior to the interview, I saw a lot of your pictures and you have such a passion for photography. And uh, my major is radio and television, but that also includes um, going out in the field and taking pictures with like the ADD cameras and all that. So I just want to know where your love for cameras stems from. Cameras, uh, pictures. That's <laughs> a great question. I... My dad was a an amateur photographer, but a passionate photographer, um, had his own dark room and everything. And so I, I think I grew up appreciating his appreciation for, for the visual image. Mm -hmm. When I was, I, I, but I wasn't a big photographer myself for, I would say for much of my life, my dad showed me how to use his cameras and I liked doing it. And I liked the dark room. It wasn't actually until um, I had my daughter and first began really feeling like I have to document this in some way. I have to capture all those moments. Like I, I'm one of those people that even when my husband and I got married, it was, you know, we didn't have a videographer. We didn't prioritize it. You know, we had friends take pictures. We didn't have, you know, a, like we, we didn't put a premium on capturing images from our lives together. We've got lots of them, but it wasn't something that we prioritized. When I had my daughter, it became this, I need, I want to capture this. And there was a bit of a transformation because it was the same time I'd started writing again, you know, personally. And I began including pictures of her, you know, with my writing. And it became another layer to the storytelling that was just really personally gratifying for me. So I've played around with 
you know, with quote unquote real cameras, you know, I have a good camera that I love, but my default ever since the advent of the iPhone has been the iPhone, you know, the photographers often say that the best camera is the one that you have on you. Um, so I can't claim to have any real technical skill as a photographer, but I love a visual story and I love capturing that visual story. And I find myself looking for those visual stories. And I love the way that that creative journey for me just gave me a new lens on the world. I get asked a lot on social media about why I post so many pictures of my children from behind which is a question that I love because I hadn't realized that I did that until somebody asked me the question and then it kept coming up. And I realized that it was the visual story that I was so attentive to was of my children being in constant movement away from me, that they were always on this journey ahead of me, that they were always somewhere racing ahead, exploring ahead, moving ahead. And that was both a real element of our lives, right? That my children are always racing off with a different energy than I have, uh, but also that this is, this is our journey together. I'm always and forever behind them. So I've really come to treasure those photos from behind where it's me because it's capturing my real experience of watching my children continually just walk or run away from me mm, it's heartbreaking too i know that <laughs> it is i mean it's it's the pathos let's say of that kind of visual image it's a thing that i wouldn't be able to capture as well in words we can say all sorts of things about the passage of time and your children grow up and leave but in a photograph i can capture one image of my daughter moving away into a sense that and it says everything about the parental experience. Mm -hmm. I will tell you um, one of the things this is always I think a, a telling moment of how mother-daughter relationships are with my mom we it was a very oh she's no longer alive but it was very um, much of a tussle and it came out later that she said well she she felt intimidated by, by me and I went well, why? She said, well, you went to college. My mother didn't. And I would have put my mother up against anybody that was a college graduate, including a PhD, because she was extremely well-read and she, she was informed and she was, you know, always curious. And I, I just, I, I never would have guessed that at all. But there's that place where she said she felt intimidated by me for that reason. And then the um, other thing about that whole mother-daughter dynamic is she felt that she had never done enough, like the bad mother, like what you were just saying. And I had told both of my parents before my mother had passed away, I said, you know, you have taught me to be strong, to be independent, to be able to figure out how to get things done. You've given me this amazing work ethic. And it's, I am the best of both of you. I am also the things that I don't like about you, but I've also learned to come to terms with them and just realize like, I think you guys are awesome. Now, my parents weren't married also. Well, you know, they got divorced later. However, it was this place where, um, yeah, you're enough and you were amazing and you were a good mom. And it was exactly what I think she, she needed to hear. And I don't think that as kids, we go back and, and tell our parents that. So that's for you, Ian. You go back and you tell your mom and your dad like, oh my God, you know, let me tell you all of the wonderful things that you've done and how you've influenced my life. And it really does make all of the difference because you turn into this uh, place when you grow up and it's a different dynamic and it's 
does your parents still see you as a child or do they see you as a peer and that you can be friends? I'm sure you've encountered that many times in maybe your own relationships, but just sharing that. And it just came out of some of the things that you said because you said that you can see the daughter going away. And that was my, my mother's fear is that she wasn't needed anymore. And as a, as a woman, it's just like, oh my God, my, my kids don't need me anymore. And they're trying to figure out who they are again, if they've put all of who they are into that child. I think to some extent, you know, I, I've generally treated raising my children from the point of view of I'm a mediator and facilitator of <laughs> part of their life journey. They've already got all sorts of power that I can never hope to fully appreciate or understand. And my job is to make space for them to be awesome and, mm -hmm. and absolutely to have them race ahead and be as much teachers to me as I am to them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's that whole idea of um, the life cycle. We always learn from those ahead of us and those behind us, and that's the value of a multi-generational family, multi-generational workforce, you know, pick it. We are here, we're made for relationship, and we need to appreciate each generation of those people that are in our lives. We tend to get impatient, I think, with mm -hmm. um, others around us. And it just makes no sense. I know that this isn't exactly on topic with like what we're talking about, but it's a morph out of the conversation of motherhood. It is. Yeah, it's all relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, uh, we already talked about your move from New York to California and you are also Canada. And so out of all of these places, has it changed your perspective on your work and your family and anything? Um, that's a great question. I, I, I mean, I guess I would have to say that it has, you know, in, in a number of different ways. Yeah, I mean, we emigrated, right? So we left Canada and came to the U.S. and we have been in the U.S. for, I, next year it'll be 10 years, you know, which is a long time to live in another country, you know, especially in a country that's gone through a tremendous amount of political and social change. So I'm asked all the time, right, how it feels to be a Canadian in the US. Interestingly, I'm like really asked how it feels to be an immigrant, right? Because <laughs> like being super white, right? It doesn't get framed that way, but it does get framed often in the context, especially, you know, over the last four years of, why wouldn't we go back to Canada and you have healthcare and, you know, all these things. And so I've, it's kind of been forced upon me to spend a lot of time reflecting on why are we here? Why do we choose to be here? And to some extent it has obviously been the work, right? But for pretty much the last five years, you know, I, I've been an entrepreneur and could have decided at any point to be based out of anywhere, but you know, we fell in love with the U.S., still love Canada very much. We loved New York. We especially love Southern California and Los Angeles. We love our community. We love our neighbors. We love the weather. You know, we love the outdoors. We love, love the American spirit of imagination and innovation. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely shamed, uh, shaped and framed who we are and, and how we live and who we are as a family. 
Were you ever an intern? Um, because obviously our show is all about internships. What was it like if you did intern? And have you ever worked with interns? Tell us what great piece of mentoring advice that you like to pass on. And then we're going to jump into predictions of the future. Awesome. I love to try to predict the future. Uh, I was never an intern in, in sort of in the in, in the business sense. I mean, I was a research assistant, you know, in university, that sort of thing. But I have worked with a lot of interns. I've had a lot of interns, and I've universally loved the experience. Um, at Babel pre Disney acquisition, it was internships, media internships, where you know were a funnel into into the company and uh, more than a few of our brightest and best team members started as interns in fact the two uh was so one of who became my one of my number two team members started as an intern and worked her way up as an intern at, through her just hustle and intelligence and talent and general amazingness, you know, use that as her, you know, as, as her funnel into a really interesting career. One of my favorite experiences at Disney, Disney has a really robust internship program. And it, it was a really interesting experience because even though we were often very aware of the internship program and often executives would be invited to give talks to interns in the program and that sort of thing, it was the interns ordinarily weren't working directly with executives at the executive level. But I think I said in one of the talks that I gave to a, a group of interns that they should like feel totally free to reach out to me and ask any questions and I'd be happy to talk to them. and. Absolutely nobody did except for one young woman who totally took me up on it and emailed me and she said, you said we could reach out to you and that you'd be open to having a conversation and I want to take you up on it and I want to learn about you and I like how you get a career here and it was so awesome because it was she stood up and advocated for herself. She took advantage of an opportunity and I ended up spending a couple of hours with her one afternoon instead of talking through different pathways through companies like Disney and other companies. And she ended up being, you know, in contact and, you know, I wouldn't call it a mentorship relationship, but she was somebody who I supported for the duration um, of my career at Disney in no small part because she was one of the few interns that stood up and said, you know what, I am going to take you up on that offer. Right. You know, I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to just take it as a throwaway line. I'm going to take you up on it. And I, I was so glad that she did. I personally learned a lot from that moment because it was one of those, you know, what Sheryl Sandberg framed as a lean in moment. I think of it as a sort of a stand up and use your voice moment that mm -hmm. I carried with me for a very, very long time. Mm. That's really good. So what do you think the future of work is going to look like? I don't, I don't have a problem. You can go in the space of like working at Disney or, or as a researcher or as anything that you would like to go in, in academic. But here we have COVID and it has changed how we do everything from the way that we go to school, the way that we go to church, you know, it's everything is online. Zoom is really, Zoom fatigue is real. And I don't know if they truly desired to have that word associated with their brand, but it became there. What do you think it's going to look like five years from now? Ten years is just really impossibly hard to, to think about, I think, for most people. 
It's a great question. I think there are a couple of different ways of looking at it. You know, one is if we set aside the, the pandemic, just sort of looking at what the trajectory is. And, and I've had more than a few conversations in different contexts and give talks where one of the things that I point to is that sort of the arc of progress for women in the workplace and in politics and in public life in general is really, 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 really slow. Like we're not on pace for wage equity and for like 130 years, right? And it's even worse for women of color. So if you just look at how long it has taken us to, to, to make meaningful changes in terms of women's participation in the public sphere, the story is kind of grim. However, a lot of these changes have happened just in the last 100 years. A ton of changes have happened just in the last 15, 20 years. And so we, we can look at it through the lens of, well, if the pace of innovation continues the way it does, then if we can assume some disruptions, then things might change more quickly that, than we would have otherwise expected. One of those disruptions is COVID, is, is the pandemic. And there are different schools of thought on this. There's a lot of sort of doomsday commentary on how terrible this is for women because so much of um, kin care and work in the household falls to women. So there is a lot of commentary that points to the increased workload on women. There are a lot of studies that are, that are arguing that women are gonna be pushed back in terms of their participation in the workforce because there are greater home obligations. The workplace has become more complicated now that it's mostly virtual. On the other hand, we're in this really interesting shift, this, this moment of cultural shift, where we're really seeing the collapse of public-private distinctions. So we're having this podcast interview through Zoom, and you can see me in my home, and I've got a very nice office backdrop, but if it were not, you know, if it were a different time of day, you might see one of my kids wander in at one point. It might not look like there's a lot of room behind me from what you can see, but my son has definitely found his way behind me to get to a window in his underpants. So there's a reality of what we balance that's come to the fore that if it sticks, right? The other thing that's changed is that we're needing to be more authentic and more vulnerable and care for each other more fully because of the circumstances of a pandemic and broad social upheaval. So we're sort of being forced into this moment where we're recognizing that there are elements of integration of home and work that are valuable and powerful, where we have to recognize that every human being, not just women, is balancing home life and work life, that there is power to being a parent and an entrepreneur or a parent and an executive, that there's power to being compassionate in how you relate to your coworkers. And I think all of those things could shift the way we the spaces that we've made for women in the workplace, because in having more opportunities for remote work, for example, there are more opportunities for working from home makes access to the workforce more accessible to a lot of women. It makes a lot of different work and home balance arrangements a lot more accessible. It makes a lot of innovation, I would argue, more accessible and more possible to sort of rethink what the workplace looks like. It gives us an opportunity to rethink what leadership looks like. It gives us an opportunity to rethink what leadership superpowers might be. So as opposed to being dominant and hierarchical, we're starting to see that leaders who have skills of compassion and empathy and active listening might do better 
in, um, in virtual workplaces and also in workplaces where you need to attend to the social emotional needs of your team. So the optimist in me would like to say that in five or 10 years, we might see the benefits of a, a real boom coming out of this difficult moment in time because or I should say not because, but if we take the opportunity to innovate, to hold on to the things that are valuable in this moment in time, to hold on to the things that it, this moment teaches us about the balance of work and family and community and neighborhood and do things a little bit differently. In that case, we might see women, we might accelerate our timetables 10x and see a whole different landscape for women in the workplace and women in leadership in general. Mm. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our show. How can our listeners find you? Share your website, please, any social, email, whatever, however you would like us to engage with you. Sure. Well, I am at HerBadMother on Twitter and Instagram, and my DMs are always open. I'm just Catherine Connors on LinkedIn, and the two web platforms you can find me at are HerBadMother.com and LeagueOfBadassWomen.org. Sounds great. Well, Catherine, I am so thrilled to have met you. And also, thank you for being a guest on our show. You know, I came across you on LinkedIn, and I was just taken with a lot of the posts that you put out. And I just went, oh, I have to get to know this woman even more. So I am um, looking forward to having a relationship here, long distance for sure, and probably through Zoom. But I know that you're as busy as a, a person can be. So I'm sure we'll be able to, if nothing else, chat through LinkedIn, but I definitely will keep in touch with you. I'm delighted to be connected, Isabella, and with you too, Ian. Yeah, this was, this was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was fun. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. Cat5 Studios.